Welcome travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. And this is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your not-so-humble guides on the quest for RPG adventures. Here at Tabletop Journeys, we are all devoted role players and storytellers at heart, and we absolutely love sharing our passion with you. On our show, we feature diverse tabletop RPG systems, demonstrating them through actual plays and breaking down the rules to provide you with tips, tools, and techniques to help you navigate them. We also love bringing the content creators behind these games into the studio to give you a peek behind the curtain with relevant and insightful interviews. Let us help you get the most out of your story, no matter what game world or system you're playing. Because detailed settings, heroic characters, diverse NPCs, and a focus on story over rules can make any campaign legendary. Here's a message from friends of the show. Have you been looking for a break from the drudgery of the real world? What if the future wasn't so bleak? What if someone was to save us all? How would that look? I must know, does your microwave can't go ding when it's done shooting? Well, you're in luck, because Cybertopia is a rules-like TTRPG actual play that explores just such a reality. We've got this disco ball, which is pretty cool. We've got these two drones flying around in here, uh, dodging me out of the smoke. Check us out on your podcast app of choice, and here are rolling cast of 16 fantastic players take on weird and wild missions that the corporate overlords need taken care of for totally altruistic and benevolent reasons. Okay, th- this time it's serious. I would like to turn my uh, hacking hat backwards. everybody to today's episode really excited to be talking tonight once again about uh, sentience to wrap up after our actual play recording uh, that just was on the channel the last couple of weeks but before we dive into the book here mr myers mr miller good evening how are things wherever you happen to be uh, this fine evening Doing pretty good. Still in Virginia Beach area for now, though early February, we're going to scooch south a little bit to North Carolina and make some rounds nice. and uh, doing very well. It's been Cloudy and a little bit chillier than we were really looking for in Virginia Beach. So we came down here to get away from the cold. <laughs> but it hasn't been too bad. We even played some chilly mini golf this afternoon. So it was a good time. Mm. Is that mini golf with chili? Because that sounds delicious. That would be delicious. Only for me, though. My wife and son do not eat chili. So I would have been the only one happy with that kind of How chili. Not e- that's a whole other that's a whole show that we can't even get into to, about how they, they don't both have chili. their faults, but they are good human beings. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> I for Speaking one, of faulted <laughs> human beings, Mr. Miller. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I for one love chili. It, however, does not like me. Mm. So my bouts with chili are very few and very far between. And there are very specific human beings that make said chili that I am willing to suffer for. So that's yep. why you uh, eat ice cream after. That is definitively something I love, but yep. it hurts. 
Yeah. You know, I, and, I, and I'm going to try my best not to bust into Nazareth. And here we go. Love hurts. The, the the only bowl of chili that you I like try at all. You keep yourself up for it, sorry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. Yeah. No, that was that was so. If that wasn't a try, that was like the worst. By try, try I meant I'm lying. I'm gonna do it anyway. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, 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 can, yeah. Carry yeah. on. No, I was, I was just saying <laughs> the, the the only bowl of chili that I like more than the bowl that I'm eating now is the bowl that I'm going to get when this bowl is empty because I can like you think I can eat my body weight in pizza? I can eat my body weight in chili. Absolutely. Nobody wants to be anywhere near me when I do. But that's a separate, that is a whole. I'll be fine with you when you do. I'll even eat the chili with you. It's a couple of hours later that I'm, I'm yeah. going to leave. This, uh, this finely tuned machine is a Kept processing. Some chili. <laughs> it's a chili processing factory. It's nice. <laughs> now that we've gotten the uh, fart joke segment of the show out of the way. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, let's, uh, let's get on to like the main swing of today's episodes. Like I said, we've been talking sentience now for a couple of weeks. Started off with the awesome interview with Al Spader talking about the, uh, the origins of sentience and the really fun actual play where we brought uh, Patreon subscriber Adam Scaramella on to go ahead and, and play with us. So let's start there. Kind of reactions of the actual play itself. I know I definitely had thoughts. Uh, it, it did not the actual play did not go the way that I thought it was going to. I mean that in all of the best ways possible. But I'd love to go ahead and, and hear your guys' uh, thoughts to start. Who would like to kick it off? So I think you need to start, honestly. You've said that okay. twice now. It intrigues the crap out of me. Yeah. It surprised you, not in the ways you expected it to, Yeah, and in good ways. But what's that yeah. last part of your, what you were saying? I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't have been surprised. when So reading through the rule book and knowing... Knowing my take on Star Trek Adventures, which Sentience is another 2D20 system put out by Modifius, it's, it's, it, it shares DNA, a lot of DNA with Star Trek Adventures. I thought that it was going to be grittier. I expected more like dark Robotech than what we got. And, and what we got was a game where I didn't ever actually feel like I was playing a robot. I, I did not ever, I never actually felt like I was playing my version of what's in my head of what a robot is. And that surprised me. It was like, oh, I didn't either, either the game was so immersive, which is entirely possible that I just forgot for a minute that Mother Bear was actually a robot, or my expectations of what I thought the game was going to be were different. I'm honestly, I'm not sure which kind of way, I'm not sure why that happened, but that was very much after we were done. I was like, man, that was so much fun and not at all what I expected. It was way more. I think the way that Al wrote in the bit about how emotional the robots are steered mm -hmm. so much of the gameplay, way more yep. than I thought it was going to. I would agree 100%, and so, now what you're saying makes sense, because totally the fact that he wrote the emotions right in as your core ability set, and that's yeah. what you base everything you do off of, made them the center and made them the focus of how we approached our robots. Yeah, it didn't yeah. feel like a robot, really, and yeah. I totally get what you're saying. You made some interesting points there, and I think I... I have some takes on different pieces, and I'm not going to go on a diatribe that lasts all hour, but yeah. I'm going to hit on a, a, a couple quick hits, and then I might get back to one of them a little bit later as we discuss, I think. We'll see how good I do at that. <laughs> if it's anything like trying not to sing Nazareth, who knows? But yeah, right. 
A couple things. One, I have known Al for quite a while. Obviously, he's been on our show. I've chatted with him incessantly on other things. I've read several of his pieces of work for STA. So I have a really strong sense of the way in which he crafts an adventure. We did get the heads up that the adventure we were going to do was the one that he wrote, right? So knowing that piece, I had a sense of the kind of adventure it was going to be from a tonal perspective. So that part didn't surprise me. So when you say you were expecting a more gritty game or whatever, I think it's important to note that I think the game can be used very well to do that, that's not Al's style. So I didn't anticipate that because I'm more aware of his style of storytelling. So that was one thing that I picked out of what you said. So that didn't particularly surprise me, but I was amazed at several aspects of the way the adventure, I think it came out in our gameplay. I was blown away with the opening scene of the of the adventure. What we did right there, like the way he used the 2D20 mechanics and how narrative that felt. The scene was designed so our characters could blend, chat, get to know each other, have fun together. And that's exactly what it was. I had so much fun in that moment. It never got too much. He knew exactly when to stop it. And he even talked to us off the episode about how that's really designed to go as long or as short as you, the storyteller, need it to be with the group you're working with. And I thought as a storyteller, he was masterful in knowing exactly when to call that scene and move us to the next beat. And I was just blown away from the way in which he game mastered the game. I literally took notes on technique things that he did because it was that good. Now, the opening scene, definitely super well-written, super well-conceived, and brilliantly concepted, especially for the style of game that Al runs, because effectively what it did, and it's not really a spoiler to the adventure, so I don't think you'll be upset with us saying this. If you all find out otherwise, then bleep this out. Basically, just a fun game bowling as robots for the first time ever doing a human activity and the whole purpose aside from getting you to loosen up and be together was to teach you the mechanics just the act of reproducing the sport of bowling through the 2d20 system taught you the basic mechanic right there in that first scene whether you were paying attention or not and you were ready to go it was brilliantly placed it was well done we keep talking about how that's how you get people into games, right? Is that you write a starter adventure whose job it is to teach you the mechanics. Right. And the adventure may not have been written to go ahead and teach the mechanics, although there were pieces through the adventure that kind of got into that. Like when the the value trade-off there, when you can go ahead and get into your AI self to to succeed on a challenge, right? That's That sort of thing. So those sort of things came out during the gameplay, but that opening scene, again, it did a couple things. One, it set the environment. It got us into character. It got us thinking about if the four of us were bowling robots, how would we go about, how are we feeling right now? Because Mm -hmm. it is purely our ability to go ahead and have fun or not is purely driven on on what was going on. And so it got us into that mindset right off. Yeah. And really like established who we all were. Like Luanico, when Rasputin was like, was playing like so like heady and so like egotistical about almost about it kind of thing. It was like, Oh, okay. So that's who Rasputin is. Okay. Got it. Yep. Yeah. And Vi- Viola was like, she's just a party girl out to have fun, full of joy. And she was super yeah, when excited. She was critiquing the music and everything like that. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. And the next thing, you know, she realizes suddenly that she's got two Eeyores with her because that's the way that mother bear 
and uh, <laughs> what was the name of Doran Dahl's personas started out because they both were dour and uncertain about this whole cert this whole uh, awakened yeah. thing based on the way that they started out. So they started out like all down in the dumps, and I was like, "Come on, man." You couldn't party. Yeah. You couldn't set me up with some people that would be fun. <laughs> yeah, uh, which brings me to the second question. I was going to mention from uh, Josh's lead-in tonight was the fact that it was so immersive that we forgot we were robots, or was it that it didn't feel like we were robots? And I think that answer is some weird soup mix. Ology yeah. of both of those things. And I say that because I noticed the same thing. But what I realized was, and I was thinking about it today, rereading a couple parts of the core rules in prep for our session tonight, I realized that at some point, that, that AP, I stopped doing a robot voice. I think Me I too. did the robot voice the entire first scene. Yeah. But I believe it took place once the action in the second scene took place and my character. And I think I acted first, if I remember correctly, went to do that. And I'm purposely trying to self-censor adventure points here. Yeah. Yeah. We don't do spoilers. Yeah. The episode did air the previous two weeks before this comes out. So people have already heard the episode. So fair enough. We we can be spoilerific. So timey-wimey sometimes it gets confusing. When Rasputin went out to see what's going on with the noise and we realized that the guy who runs the bowling alley is in trouble, somewhere in that moment is when I dropped the robot voice. But then it dawned on me, while these characters could in fact have a robot voice, part of me is thinking, why in fact would they necessarily – because they have emotions. And that's where I think there's this weird soup between – should we feel like we're robots or whatever? If the robots are literally the physical body and they now have souls and sentience, shouldn't we feel more like we're people with weird attachments that can do some other things? Emotion behind a word, changing the inflection. And I don't know if I, I I don't think I consciously thought about that while we were playing. I was just enjoying playing the character. I had a great character and I played it, but I did really think about that afterwards. And I think that's one of the beauties of this game. If you're playing a longer term campaign versus a one shot, that's probably some of the things you can get into. And depending on the timing and the setting, some of the groups that your long-term characters might be involved with, we'll talk about some of that as we get into the parts of the book that really didn't come into the one-shot or in the quick guide. But when you start looking at some of those things and you start saying, okay, let's do a, a, a campaign of however many sessions or what have you, I think you might actually have a situation where as a player, I might want to slow down that progression that we had in this adventure and maybe have that robot voice for the first one or two sessions and right. then slowly work my way out of it. But again, depending on the timing, like how soon after the awakening are we playing versus later? There are some wonderful narrative questions that come with what we played and what this game can be. And I think it's very table specific so however agm and their players want to take it this is really a great vehicle for that i want to make sure that i really underscore that i had a tremendous amount of fun playing mother bear but Hmm. i also think too that even within the scope of that one shot 
as the adventure changed, I came in with this with the concept that Mother Bear was going to be very nurturing, very calming, very soothing. I, I can see how Viola would think that Mother Bear was a wet blanket, like trying to douse her fun a little bit. Like I can totally get because that's exactly what Mother Bear's intention was. She's called Mother Bear. That's right. you know, that's but so that's like the mothering aspect of it. And then there's the bear aspect of it. That as soon as as stuff starts going down, Mother Bear is like totally like red-eyed Johnny Five. Annihilate. One of the other things that I thought was really interesting about the gameplay, and I don't know if this is just who we are as game players, but man, for a while there it felt an awful lot like a section like a session of Action 12 Cinema. Because the number of movie references and everything that were coming in there were like it was like firmly 1987. We were wearing our skinny ties and our tall hair. It was fabulous. It was absolutely fabulous. And so so again, like just a kind of a statement about how the game never got in the way of any of that. And I think that that's one of the things that I think that's great about a 2D20 system in general. Also, too, like the rules never got in the way of us like exploring what these emotions would be from a robot personality. Like it never felt forced to me. All of us tried to go ahead and hit all of our emotions, I think, because we understood that's the way the game works. It never felt forced. Yeah, that's there is mechanic in there that if you use all six of your emotions, things happen. You get additional experience at the end of the yeah. adventure. So you have a motivation to use them all instead of just staying with your best ones, which yeah. I really yeah. loved. But I, I love that it never felt forced. I felt like we never like, oh man, how do I use, oh, how am I going to use this emotion right now? No, there's a situation for all of them and all of them can be worked in. Yeah, not only did it not feel forced, I, and I feel bad for saying this, missed that rule when prepping for the actual play, didn't know it existed, Ended up using all of them, didn't find out there's experience points for doing that until we were completed, done, and were wrapping up after the game was over. Yeah. That's when I found out the way I played actually gained extra experience. And I, to that point, there's a moment, and I forget exactly when, I started to use one emotion. I was going to do take some action or some task that I was going to handle, and I said i said yeah this is uh, i'm gonna use this and this and then i started talking in character and the words i love this i said wait a minute i just said i loved it i used the wrong thing if i said i loved it and that's how i'm feeling in this moment then that's the that's the emotion i need to use and i changed the emotion i needed to use now that was mechanically worse like probably (laughs) 15 yeah. to 20% worse emotion to use in that situation. I did succeed anyway. I rolled really well. Uh, I think I bought extra dice to make sure I got yeah, an yeah, opportunity yeah. to yeah. do well. But the fact was, is I didn't feel bad about that. If I failed, I would have been fine because yeah. that felt like the perfect way to handle that character moment from that character perspective. When a game can cause me as a player to say I am not only fine with taking the less mechanically sound route but I want to because it works better because it's narratively better that's a well constructed game the enjoyment came from fulfilling the narrative not from quote unquote rolling the dice that speaks directly to the brilliance of designing the emotions to be part of the core stats and to be directly involved in everything the robot does. And I don't mean just from the perspective of robots, like 
hats off to Al just for the concept because it doesn't just impact the mechanics and it doesn't just make you think about your robot having emotions. It informs role play and encourages yep. role play because everything you're doing right here on your sheet, you're saying I'm using sad. That immediately makes you ask, why am I sad right now while I'm doing this? What, how does it relate? It, it feeds the whole game and keeps those in-character role-played choices closer to the top, I think. And truly, chef's kiss, to steal Josh's phrase, but (laughs) probably one of my favorite mechanical choices I've seen in a game in a long time. Yeah, that's one of those things that we keep talking about how... And we're not going to... Look, this isn't Star Trek Adventures. It's a totally different game. And they're built on the same engine, so there's a lot of parallels that can be drawn there. All that to go ahead and say that we have talked a lot over the last year about just how well the 2d20 mechanics feed narrative not only from like the way that you build a character with with attributes and disciplines and how they interact with each other how it's always gonna take one from each column to go ahead and make your role and everything like that but also just like the threat and momentum mechanics and how they can steer gameplay when we went outside and found the robot from the bowling alley, had been beaten up with lead pipes, his arms had been ripped off and everything, all four of us responded to that very differently. Like, Rasputin, you immediately went into damage control mode. How do I find out who did this and where do we go ahead and track down where they are? Doran Dal immediately went into, how do I fix this? I'm an assembler robot. How do I go ahead and reassemble him? I immediately went into nurturing mode. Where is it? Where is the threat coming from? How else can we go ahead and do this? And Viola, you went off to go ahead and basically start cracking skulls and go ahead and take revenge on the fact that they just got beat up in the parking lot. All of us started spinning off into all these different directions based on our emotional response to it. It, it was just really a nice twist on it. You made a comment about it when you were talking about the about whether we were robots or Winika. And I'm trying to go ahead and put myself back into that brain space when we were in the game there. And I was like, I never felt like I was a robot. If I had been playing a supers game, if we'd been playing Master the, yep. the Next Generation, right? So teen angst, everything like that, with kind of that same emotional component, would it work? Absolutely. Would have worked brilliantly. It wouldn't work in every game, and that would work with some other genres, but the fact that it's working with robots was really nice. I'm not sure that it would really fit into a lot of other genres. There are a handful, like a Divine Calling. So again, playing on that like teenager angst thing, can we go ahead and work in an emotional system into that too? Given certain kind of styles of gameplay, the emotional system works so well. And you're talking about robots who have newly awakened and newly come into kind of like their emotional existence. It's the perfect setting for that kind of a game. Am I writing an emotion system for Dungeons and Dragons or Pathfinder right now? No, I'm not. But for this setting, brilliant, perfect. Even though I would never necessarily write one, how much are we going to draw on the emotional quotient that we were able to play through? Not from a mechanical perspective, but from a narrative perspective in the other games that we play. We're going to be doing a lot of We're going to be doing a lot of actual plays, and they're going to be invariant systems. But drawing from that emotional state, it's a really excellent flex of our role-playing muscles, and really well done. Welcome to the core role-playing 
like air quote requirement behind collaborative world building, right? How is your character feeling about the thing that's going on right now? And based on how they're feeling, what else is happening? It's like that collaborative world building is the next step. It's okay, Rasputin, you're angry about this. So what are you doing? How is the world shifting around your anger? now and how did it shift that you tracked down you found the registration for the car the registration led to an apartment all of a sudden now that there's an apartment building and we know where the guy lives how much of that existed ahead of time who knows but that's where collaborative world building comes up is that how does the world shape around your emotional outburst it's perfect here at tabletop journeys we've leveled up our game and we're prepared to make your next role legendary We've just started a partnership with FanRoll Dice, and they have over 300 product options to choose from. Gemstone, Metal, New Liquid Core Dice, and so much more. Better yet, listeners to the Tabletop Journeys podcast can get 10% off on their orders when they follow the link below and use discount code PODCAST10. A portion of these purchases come back to us, and this is a great way for you to help support the show. So let's dive into kind of like the book itself, because one other thing that I really wanted to go ahead and talk about after talking for almost 30 minutes about the actual play that we just did is the book itself. Was that? Yeah, it was a lot of fun. The book itself is physically gorgeous. Let's talk about this layout for just a minute. It is absolutely stunning. The entire look of it with that brushed steel look throughout gives that, that kind of classy metallic look without being without being so like brightly polished and smooth like we would expect a star trek book to be like brightly polished and smooth because everything is very neat corners and everything like that this is a different kind of look to it but while still being like sci-fi industrial and i think that it it gives it this appearance of the working robot right it's like the brushed steel for strength and everything like that neat clean fonts and everything like that i thought that the layout of the book itself really helped set Again, the character of the game itself. I thought that was really a lot of really effective choices in that, especially combined with kind of the bright, neatly illustrated, again, Robotech style comic book art that's in it really was very striking against that kind of brushed steel exterior. Yeah, and they did a great job with choosing the tones for the foreground, the background, and then keeping the black lettering. It's easy to look at. It's not hard on the eyes. The light even shifts as you go down the page, and I found that made it a little bit easier to transition as opposed to reading a solid block. The, the layout is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. When we had our interview with Al, for those who haven't listened to that, it's we aired it two weeks ago, three weeks ago now. Please go back, listen to that interview. Al gave the whole story about how the Yellow Hand, that's the group that did the layout, and it wasn't the first iteration of this book. So for those of you who are picking up on Sentience 2D20 t- now, today, you're getting the best version of it. The game was solid long before it looked this good, but now it looks this good also. So it's got a look that really supports the quality of the game. I'm not going to go too much into all the things I said the last time, but I will say what I noticed in the core book, very different than just a quick start, is once you start getting into some of the rules specifics, 
there are certain tables and certain areas that just by virtue of where they fell in the layout were one clean page. And then there's like a bar on the side of it with the quick notes and, and high value details that you might need to run this in the game. So you would turn to that page or have that earmarked if you have the physical book and be able to go right to that spot yeah. uh, for that view. Brilliant. Just brilliant. Some of that is choice. Some of that is, okay, where are these pages going to lay? Let's try to get all that information in this spot. We're going to do a little bit differently with art on this page to facilitate that look. But not every rule is that. I think there's a couple rules that might be split over two pages, but not many. Most rules are entirely encapsulated on a single page, or there might be two or three smaller rule sets within a given page, but most rules are contained on a page. That cannot be easy. I don't do layout and there's a host of good reasons for why <laughs> yeah but that cannot be easy to do so hats so off e- to uh, the yellow hand even from a layout point of view though let me go ahead and cause doing the layout for our products for our projects has caught me a thing or two about doing layout and that the decisions that were made from a content point of view go beyond the layout we talked about this we talked about this in the interview when we had al on about how neatly distilled the 2d20 rule set is in this book and how elegantly it's put together we who have been running a star trek game at least one star trek game for a year now for over a year found new rules that we didn't realize were part of the 2d20 core system thought that they were something special in sentience only to go ahead and realize oh no that's the way all 2d20 games work Whoops, we've been adjudicating that incorrectly for Star Trek Preservations the entire time. Sorry, guys, that's going to be changing for Season 2. <laughs> like that's uh, sorry. sorry, guys, things just got a lot harder. <laughs> that goes beyond layout, though. Like That goes to, a for one, a very tactically precise understanding of the rules, which clearly Al has, given the experience that he's had with SCA, but also very smartly deciding how things go together. What's the logical order that things should be put together so that they can do that sort of thing, so they can do that layout so smartly. So from a planning point of view, it's really it's a work of art too. Yeah, and, and Al had the privilege and advantage of being a freelance writer already for STA, so he has to be really familiar with the rules. And having all of that in his head and having pre-written pre previously for that rule set, it makes sense that he was able to do to do this, to bring it down, but it is still super impressive. I'll be honest, I didn't want to run STA because trying to read through the rules and the, the Game Master's sections of it, it was a lot and it was very spread out. And I totally get why you could have missed things, but Al has 100% like taken that funnel and taken all that information and brought it right down to a much more understandable level for me. Now I might think about it. (laughs) Excellent. I've said it before. I'll say it again. There's a reason why starting with the starter set and the GM's guide is the best way to start running STA. The Core Rules is a very valuable book, but I think you do a better job of starting with the other two and then using the Core Rules as a reference guide now that you know what you're doing and what to look for. I think that's the way that it works best, at least for me. That's how it worked in my head. I have been told I don't have that particular set, the tricorder set. The Rules Digest that comes with that set is also a good place to, to, to begin with for both players and GMs. And you're right. The benefit it is here we are 
seven, almost eight years in, if not eight years into the life cycle of STA, a qualified, bona fide, and experienced veteran writer of so many STA projects already completed, being worked on, and coming in the future, can bring all of that experience. I will say the GM's guide, the player's guide, and all those other guides are better because the writers who worked on those also had that earlier book, which was brilliant in its own way for the first of its kind. They were able to improve upon what existed because they had a strong base and they made a refined and better product. So now here we have a, with the rule set specifically, as we're talking about, a greater refinement of those rules. I think that's a product of timing. But it's also attention to detail, which only comes from a creator who cares about the game, the system, the community, the players, and the GMs who are going to be having fun with this thing. The goal of a game is for it to be fun. You don't want GMs to have to work, quote unquote, to enjoy. You want them to enjoy doing it. doesn't mean they don't do some things or there aren't some things that have to be done or prepped for or anything like that, but you don't want it to be a chore. You want it to be enjoyable to do the thing, to run the game, to play the game. And I think there's just a really good, a strong belief on the part of everybody at Modifius in general, and at least this particular person in the world builders that really understands that. And their goal is to continue to make it fun for folks to run and play the game and grow the hobby. And I can say I have experience with a total of two 2D20 systems so far, STA and Sentience. Both of them are fun. They're great to play, and I enjoy the heck out of them. Yeah. I'm I'm very much looking forward to go ahead and getting Cohors Cthulhu, which is which is coming soon. I've been reading through a lot of Octon Cthulhu, which is their World War II Nazi fighting game that's set in the Cthulhu mythos, which that's a lot of fun. But yeah, that's I love the way that this was laid out. Like just from just uh, just such a skilled hand in putting this together. Absolutely. So I feel like I've talked a lot here, Louie Nico. What's one of your favorite parts about the book? Or about the about Honestly, the I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to go back to the well here, and if anybody who's been following Tabletop Journeys for the last year knows we talk a lot about it, and that's factions. And it's not called factions here. It's called social groups, and I just really loved that section. I thought in addition to all the things as far as building your robot and developing that character through the – life path that the robots have, a neat thing would be to consider where they fit into society and where these different groups and how the robots have broken up into different groups, depending on the game you run. You could use some, all, none. Some could be antagonists, some could be whatever. And I really thought without saying, here's the faction, if you're part of these guys, you don't like these guys or whatever, but it just did a really good job of saying, here's some concepts that as you're building your robot, do you feel more like this or like that? What if you build a robot who's good for one? The original robot chassis before the Awakening was built for one, but they really feel the other. I'm going to go back to Babylon 5 here where you have Nehrun who says, I may have been born warrior cast, but my heart has always been religious as he stepped into the star wheel. I think that this is the kind of setup that allows you to really dig deep into that kind of character development and gameplay. Again, yeah. especially if you're doing some campaign type stuff, or at least 
regular one shots. Like if you're doing this every five sessions, like your group does t- some 2D20, some other game, and you're like, hey, let's do the robot thing this week. Johnny's not here. We'll do the robot thing this week. And you could do that, <laughs> but you're all playing the same characters time to time. I think that would be just amazing. Like that would be really cool. Or if you're going to a, a smaller convention, like Drinking and Dragons, and you just run this every couple, two out of three Drinking and Dragons events uh, out of the year. I think that can be really fun to really get into that kind of thing. Yeah. And I, I think that's where a campaign level game of sentience for me would, that's what it would, that's what it would circle around, right? It would circle so much around character development. Now that I'm like thinking through it and talking about it a little bit, when I was talking earlier about how like differently the game felt, right. When I, then I, what I thought was going to be like, the adventure was almost so secondary to who we were as characters. And that I think is what was what was like most surprising. It's like that adventure could have been anything. And I think that's where I was going earlier too, where it's like, would this work for a Supers game? Would this work for anything else? Would this work in a Star Trek game? All that kind of thing. It's like, it, the adventure was secondary. The adventure really did not. We could have been doing anything and still been going through the same emotions and still being still seeing the same kind of character development and everything like that. And so that's that's a really interesting thing. The game is so character centric that a campaign, by very nature, would have to be so deeply rooted in character development. I think that 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 is a really interesting uh, a really interesting angle about what this would be versus like Star Trek, which is so episodic, right? Where it's like the plot is a main character in Star Trek. It just, it is. And it didn't feel that way with sentience because you as a player are so emotionally invested into your character. So I definitely see what you're saying, but I had a slightly different feel there because the plot very much, in my opinion, supported our character development too. And I say that because the way that Al wrote it, I think, was beautiful in general. You're a newly awakened robot. You start out in a bowling alley. You've got new emotions. You're having a good time. Everything's good. You go outside. What do you find? You find your friend getting beaten up. Dude, what does it do to your good mood? It drives it into the dumps. And it he it felt to me like the plot deliberately took us on this emotional roller coaster, first of joy, then anger and outrage, then the angst of the investigation as we're trying to figure out why these people did this to him. And then we'd uncover the bigger plot. And it's not just about our friend and revenge anymore. We discover that they're about to blow up a giant ravine to separate their district completely and kill hundreds of innocent robots. And now we're faced with that character choice of, okay, this makes me feel like really overwhelmed and scared, but do I step up? (laughs) Yeah. Or do I go home to my cubicle and just plug in to recharge? The plot, to me, really took us through those emotions to help with the character development. I think it definitely depends on how how it's written and how it's carried, but I definitely think that that was deliberate. And I, again, hats off to Al. It was a fantastic starter adventure to teach us the game and teach us all the things it taught us about our emotional little mechanical counterparts. What you're describing there, Glenn, can be, is frequently spoken about, and I know you, you've been writing for years and you're very good at this. You gave the actual definition without giving the phrase, but what you gave is the rising falling action, or in the case of sentience, the rising falling emotion is what Al wrote. I would disagree with Josh in one respect. I think the adventure was very much, the plot was very much necessary to what was happening but it was less because of 
bad guy A did X and Y, but more because of the scene construction and the emotional content built into each scene. I felt that it could have been anything in that it could have been these guys wanted to buy the South Fork Ranch so that JR and the Ewings were destitute. Or it could have been they wanted to find the location of the rebel base and destroy Alderaan. Right. But as long as it had these emotional beats in that specific order, yep. the plot wasn't necessary, but it had to be those types of scenes yep. in that order and expertly run in those lengths yep. so that the emotions hit, we felt them, we played off them, and then it moved us to the next bit right away. Mm-hmm. I don't think we lingered in any moment or scene too long. That, as a GM, is something I have to be very careful of. Something I struggle we, with sometimes. When to we've, have you, you asked me a question before we went to air about my game that I, my campaign, the Northerners and why it ended a little bit faster oh. than what I had originally talked to you about. Yeah. yeah. I'll get to that in a moment, but, or I'll get, we'll talk about that it, 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 over time. But one of the things that I picked up specifically from our actual play is sometimes you can linger too long and then you've lost the emotional win in that moment for everybody involved. So yeah. I made some decisions with my campaign that quite honestly, had I not really seen it here and had about a week to really think that through mm-hmm. that I might not, might have changed how I even ran my campaign and how I chose to conclude an epic yeah. level campaign. We're going to keep saying this. I'm sorry for anybody who says Leonika keeps saying wonderful things about Al Spader. He's gonna because <laughs> You made me a better GM because I sat at this virtual table with you two weeks ago. And I think specifically the adventure that you did has shown me a lot. And we do some things like this in our own adventures. When I think Mm -hmm. about what we did with the Splinterverse Media, our adventure had those rising, falling emotions. We built that. We built a mechanic specific to to track the emotional state of the main character. Oh, storytellers navigate it. And make sure that was a focal point of the adventure. And I think that one, 2D20 does that phenomenally well. And Sentience does that better than phenomenally well. But I think we are always, as writers, trying to do these things. I think this is a great conversation that we're having because now it's spelled out the roadmap is before us. And like, man, that's Mm. the path that we've always wanted to be on. And we frequently are. But now we can see the times where we've diverted from it, and now we can get back on that path a little faster than we might have otherwise done. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we, we stopped Malcolm and saved the Glades and stopped the undertaking. It was great. <laughs> yeah. We did. We, we were successful, which, again, like the ultimate character arc, right? So start off on a really high note, go down to a really low, work and work to figure out what's going on, ultimately to go ahead and end on a high note again. That's it's It's 
the fabulous checkmark story arc, right? Where it's come all the way down, just go ahead and get built back up. Fabulous. Love the arrow reference, by the way. Thank you. That was really good. You're welcome. I've been trying to come up with it forever since I was talking about the explosion earlier, and I couldn't, and it finally came to me in the middle of you talking, so I had to work it back in. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I did think about the glades when we were there and almost made that comment, just chose not to in the game. But yeah, I had thought about yeah. that also. On the upside, having played STA and through it become familiar with the 2D20 system, I came in already having a solid idea on how the mechanics were going to roll. But the way that Al introduced them informed the style of game he was going to play and how that was going to roll out, which was great. One of the most compelling about Sentience over STA as a player is one of the things that we've actually discussed in our cast meetings, too, is that sometimes STA can feel a little too easy. Najar's rocking a 17 when he fires a laser rifle on a D20. So at almost character conception, he only fails on those three numbers, 18, 19, and 20. That's a significant chance of success for somebody right out of the gate. But our robots do not start with that high of a stat set. I think the highest anything could be was a 13. And I loved that because it felt more... Like, hey, we could we could lose here if I don't yeah. roll. If I get too many failures, this could be it for me or Mother yeah. Bear or someone else. And I really enjoyed that aspect. I felt that it brought the sense of peril closer to home. Yep. In terms of things that really stood out to me in the game, it's something we've talked about before a lot for different games that have it. I really love the 2d20 model and how al translated that for sentience of the life path as you're doing your character generation as mm-hmm. opposed to just coming up with an entire set of stats and poof there's your character the way you follow the steps and then it starts out with how you respond to the awakening whether or not you were curious whether or not you were terrified whether or not all these new emotions were wonderful or you were like holy crap i want to go back i want to go back <laughs> that informed your stats and your skills directly And those bits and pieces, as you either rolled them or chose them, helped finish create creating the final character. And I love that type of character evolution as you're creating it, that type of character generation system. But reading through the options for how it could have gone, and I partially made a character while going through them just to see how it it trained through. I didn't get to create Viola. That would have been fun. But she was a blast also. But just going through that, your reaction to the awakening, and then your immediate interactions with social groups afterwards, and how much that influenced who you were in the end, let me read the character sheet of Viola and know basically that she was a party girl, that she loved the awakening, and since she dove into human pop culture, a mad machine, because she was just gobbling it up, movies, music, everything. She just wanted to be feeling fussy, walking in her blessiussies, trying to bring out the fabulous. <laughs> that was who she was. And I could tell because the life path created that. Yeah. The bit about how how close we were to failure at numerous points. Like, let, anybody that's listened to the AP knows, for the first half of that game, we pretty much collect, uh, basically after the bowling, like we all bowled pretty well, but after the <laughs> bowling, there was a period of time where we were not doing well dice-wise. That threat was getting really high <laughs> because we were not rolling well. And I think that the the fact that it is more difficult to succeed out of the gate by design, right? He and Al specifically mentions that he that the emotions and protocols are scaled lower than they would typically be in an STA game, right? 
plus the fact that you're playing from an emotional point of view, that fear of failure is so tangible. It's so palpable. It's also you don't want to be the one on this group that fails and lets down everybody else. One of my favorite scenes was, and and maybe it's just fresh on my mind because I was just editing this part of the episode a little while ago, but there was a bit where Doran had failed and Mother Bear, being the the nurturing, sensitive robot that she is, sees that Doran feels bad about the fact that that they failed. And so Mother Bear comes over trying to comfort him and it's okay, Doran. Everyone knows that you tried and trying is the point and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) I'm not sure why I did it, but at the very end, I just made a comment. I still love you, Doran. And I'm it's it came across way creepier than Mother Bear wanted it to, and way creepier than Josh wanted it to. And all of you are like, oh, that's weird. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I said that was creepy. Yeah. Mother Bear's right. struggling with these emotions. She doesn't quite know how my to emotions. handle them. Exactly. So it just yeah. came out weird. Yeah. yeah. Here I am trying to help and I'm not succeeding on it. It was it was Really interesting how that fear of failure and the emotional component of it really work together. I absolutely agree. Nice. As a GM for STA, and I have, I've only played two sessions of STA as a player. And those were basically meet the party sessions. There's very little activity. We barely got into the plot in those two sessions of that particular game I played in. Though I love the character I I made, I'm actually intending on using him at some point, either in Preservations or Expeditions at some point, because it's just a really cool character. But I didn't worry about stress. Like The amount of stress never even entered my mind. I don't think at any point I knew how much threat there was. It never even entered my mind. I cared very much about how much momentum there was because that was the currency I was going to be using. I had no care for threat other than if there was no momentum and I felt it was necessary to do a thing, I would have happily given that threat. It just never entered my mind because My amount of time behind the screen, every time I've ever utilized threat, it was because the scene wasn't fun enough and the threat was the currency to make it more fun. So I, as a player, sat there saying, I'm having plenty of fun. I don't think we ever really got to a point where that would have been necessary that I'm aware of. But as a player, I looked at it more, yeah, I'm going to give the GM more abilities to make this more fun. If at any point this gets less than exciting or too easy or too whatever, I want the GM to have everything they need in their disposal to make it better. So in my head, because I've spent a year behind the screen, I will always give threat. So for all anybody playing a 2D20 game with me, recognize this fact up front. This cat is going to throw that much threat all day. I will help every GM try to beat Michael Desmuke's record every time. So <laughs> that didn't phase me at all, right? But I will say I did find the lower stats and the capability of failure – to be interesting and better. And we've talked, and you're right, Glenn, we have talked about it. I've talked with Al separately, and there are a couple dials and knobs that we at TTJ have not been using that Absolutely. I learned we'll while there. watching this game. So 
some of that will be better from that perspective, but higher stats are higher stats. I think that is somewhat reflective of the IP where this isn't that. And I think if I were to want to run any 2D20 game and I wanted to make it grittier, when we're building characters, I might do something like, let's put an attribute limit here and we're going to play a little slightly more grounded characters. I think that's honestly the way I would I could achieve that in addition to knowing how these other things work. I th- I, th- there's no shade cast there. The Star Trek characters are designed to be that powerful. It is yeah. 100% a choice. The STA game even says right in, in the rules as you're reading it, Star Trek, Starfleet officers are exceptional human beings who have undergone rigorous training and are very good at their jobs. They can figure out almost anything given enough time. They will succeed. It basically says straight up, Starfleet officers don't fail. They might struggle for a little bit, but they don't fail. So they're designed to be that way. And yeah, as you as we learn more of the pieces parts and those dials to twist and how to work traits in better to limit some of our options or to make us spend more threat for dice, those things are going to come together. That's just a matter of time. Star Trek's designed to be that way. I just really enjoyed the other side of the page the other side. Sentience yeah. and having an yeah. opportunity to truly feel at risk. Totally Absolutely. Agree. I love action movies of all kinds. Some of them are going to be Remo Williams and other ones are going to be like Jack Fantastic Reacher. Fantastic movie. And I love that you referenced it. Nobody's seen that, but me. <laughs> no, we've watched that together at least once or twice. I would imagine You're right, we have, I, I'm pretty sure we have. I use those two films because they are vastly different and I love them both. I could also have said little big trouble in little China, right? Amazing mm-hmm. films, right? I love all, uh, I love both those films and I just finished Jack Reacher season two. If you haven't seen that show yeah, finish I just finished this episode it too. It was, and go watch that show. It is incredible. <laughs> it is awesome. Alan Although Richardson I thought the last episode amazing. was a little anticlimactic. We'll talk about that at a later point. Uh, <laughs> Sounds like point, we got a side quest coming. Sorry. Yeah. My point is that I watch those two things for two different reasons. They fill two different buckets for me, but both of them Absolutely. fill those buckets completely, yeah. right? I think that's the way you want to you, you can look at the expressions of the 2D20 system where you have higher chances of failure or lower chances of failure or and, and whatnot is what buckets are you looking to fill here? And right. if you're looking to fill certain buckets, then as long as the game does that really well, then it's perfect for that. And I think that's what we're talking about. I don't think they're I don't think either are bad. And there are probably players that are really only going to one versus another. But I personally think they're just two very different things that are both amazing. I happen to enjoy both. Sometimes you want the Lord of the Rings. Sometimes you want paranoia. All right. So we've had this great conversation about sentience tonight. Uh, I want to go ahead and and take a minute to open up for you guys. Leave last thoughts also. First thought, honestly, is that so much fun to play the game. Really excited that it went a different direction than I thought that it was going to. Love the way that the emotional investment in the character, love for the game and the way that it spurns such interesting player-driven narrative. I thought that was uh, absolutely fantastic. So, how about you guys? I, I absolutely want to second that as far as how much fun it was to be that invested in a character who ostensibly is a pre-gen that we picked and selected our characters within a day or so of actually playing the game. And a couple of them were picked the night before. 
I think that's amazing that you that I could get that much investment out of a pre-gen. That doesn't happen easily. I'm going to continue to talk about this game. I think anytime we're talking 2D20, I'm going to be referencing this for the rest of 2024 and beyond. I, I will leave that at that, but I will say the one thing I didn't mention in any of our previous episodes about Sentience is the character sheet that they have in the, on the last page of the core book is gorgeous and so easy to comprehend. It's just a brilliant document that as a player who has some challenges with information overload and the ability to pick out the right things, this hits all my right buttons in all the right ways. It's clean. It's easy to figure out. All I need is a form-fillable version of it, and it would be 100% perfect. Heck, what can I say? We've said it all. I guess I could go with my one and only disappointment about the game. That it ended? That we don't get to find out what Viola does after, that we don't get to have another round. In the interview episode, I talked about, I thought it would be great to have a mashup of Wally and Ed 209. Viola started as a recycling <laughs> robot, and at the end of that game, she pulled one of them big cannons off of that sucker that we had taken out, and, and at yep. the end of the game, she was dragging it behind her as she walked off. That's the way it. we were headed, man. <laughs> uh, but as is the yeah. way of one-shots, it was a one-shot, yep. and while it was as fun... It is over. Yep. We'll just have to wait until uh, the second edition of Sentience comes out and go ahead and have Al back here. And Al, standing invitation. Or heck, we'll... maybe we could just get together yeah. with Al and play a game. Wouldn't that be nice? So next week coming up on the show. So first off on Tuesday, the second season of Star Trek Preservations begins. Those of you who are listening to season one, it ended on quite the cliffhanger. Season two begins on Tuesday of this coming week. And then on Friday, if you've enjoyed this little series of shows, all about sentience. We're going to go ahead and do the whole thing all over again with some friends that we met at a catacon this past year. We've got our friends from Bud Stuff Games coming on, and we're going to be talking about their game, We Can Be Heroes. We Can um, Be so Heroes. This coming Friday, we're going to have an interview with them talking about the game, and they're going to be coming on back to go ahead and run an actual play, We Can Be Heroes. Hopefully, the adventure that they throw at us is it goes better for them than the last one did because the last time we steamrolled them. Amazingly fun game to play. Amazingly catacon. fun yeah. game. Really looking forward to showcasing that to all you got there. Tabletop journeys whenever we get to do supers, which we don't do terribly often, but I can't think of a time we've done any kind of supers game where we haven't had fun. I really like this game and I can't wait to play again. Really looking forward to go ahead and having them back too because Spencer and the crew down there are really awesome people. Uh, so really looking forward to bring them on to go ahead and show them off to all y'all. Yeah. So anyway, so we'll be back uh, next week with some preservations and some We Can Be Heroes. Otherwise, hope that you enjoyed this game. Go out, buy Sedgeance, go check it out. If you're wondering, uh, the links to go ahead and purchase it will be down in the show notes there. Thanks again for listening. We'll talk to you again next week. Have a good night, everybody. Good night, all. Later. Thank you for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. Join us at www.ttjourneys.com where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. You can also stay in touch by subscribing to our Twitter, Tumblr, or Instagram at TT Journeys, joining our Facebook group, Tabletop Journeys, or by sending an email directly to podcast at ttjourneys.com. Our full episodes come out every week on Friday, and every Tuesday features actual play and gameplay showcase episodes. Looking for early access? 
You can support the show and get episodes before everyone else at www.patreon.com forward slash TT Journeys. Check it out today and see all the awesome benefits we bring to our supporters. Lastly, if you're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, or Audible, you would really appreciate it if you would like and subscribe to the podcast on that platform. Thank you for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And we bid you fair tides, friends, for legends await. Oh,